we have only one sound man today, so he's doing double duty back there. This would be a good time for our Sabbath school children to leave and their teachers. <laughs> what a great time for that. Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. His message is entitled, Patiently Waiting on the Lord. Curtis. Thank you, Ron. Good afternoon. As uh, Ron just said, uh, my title today is Patiently Waiting on the Lord. And I just want to, I think that that was kind of a good little introduction uh, how we can be patient sometimes, you know, when things aren't always, you know, going quite like, you know, we want them to. Uh, so, I have a few things I want to do today. Uh, as far as what the objective of this message is. It's going to be more of like a devotional type message. Uh, but I want us just to think about that word, patient. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that word, patient. But, what is patient today? I mean... <laughs> Do we live in an age that really even understands what patience is anymore? I mean, let's just think about it. Let's think about how automated everything is. Everything is just like the click of a button, right? If I, you know, if many of you are like me, if I wanted to, like, for example, order a book, used to, I'd have to go to a bookstore. That bookstore might not have it. I might have to ask them to order it. They would order it. I'd have to wait a week or two, and then maybe I could come back and get that book, and I would have it. Today, most of us can go online to a place called Amazon or Google Books or one of those places, uh, and I can take my phone out. This is this little contraption here, and so can you if you have one. And I can go to that website if I have Wi-Fi, if I have a data plan, and I can add a click of a button, get an online version of that book, not next week, not in a couple days, but right now. In the process of this message today, you could go and you could order and buy a book and be reading whatever book you want. Not all of them are online, but many of them are. And it's like that with so many different things in life. I mean, literally, like you shop, I mean, most people shop online today. I mean, so much of the things are done through online shopping. In fact, this has even become an issue in you know, we, we, we've had problems with, like, Oklahoma, for example, in a revenue failure. This is even a, a problem within, when it comes to tax revenue because so much shopping is done cross borders now because you are not going to a store in your local town or some town close by, but you're ordering it online, which may be, you know, in Arizona, or it might be in Texas where that book is coming from or where that product is coming from. And so today, in this 2016, century, you know, 2016 year, this 21st century, I think the word patience has been something that is almost a, a lost 
characteristic. I think it affects all of us. I mean, let's just think about it. Information is immediately able to be obtained today just by going to the internet, just by going to one of these electronic devices or a phone or a computer, and you immediately can get whatever information you want. Some people still use physical things. If I want to know a phone number at a place, I get my phone out, I type in the business, where it's at, and I get that phone number immediately. If I want to see what's on TV tonight, used to when I was a kid, you'd have to, you know, go and wait for the Sunday paper to get a TV guide. It was actually in the paper and you would, you know, it would have Monday through, I don't know if it was Sunday through, through, through Saturday, if it was Monday through Sunday, but you would, you know, find the time, find the right page, and then you'd, you know, look down and, oh, okay, this is what's coming on. Maybe some of you guys remember that, but we don't have to do that anymore. Most cable or satellite, you know, they have digital, you know, uh, TV guides right then and there. I'm a teacher, obviously, uh, many of you know, and this has also been something that has been, I think, demonstrated through a lot of people that are at the ages of 15, 16, 17 years of age. Uh, they have to do research papers sometimes, and I have to admit, I have benefited from the technological age as far as computers go. And when I was in college and in high school, we had the internet, even though when I was in high school, it was the dial-up version of internet. It was a little bit more difficult. It wasn't nearly as fast today. But we have these things today called databases like EBSCOhost and these different things. And so used to, when you'd write a research paper a long, long time ago, you'd have to go to a library. You'd have to find a topic. And maybe you'd you know, have those drawers that they'd have in libraries, and you'd pull it out, and you'd have to find the call number, you know, the, the Dewey Decimal System, and figure out, you know, well, here's this book, and then you'd have to maybe read that book, and then you'd have to go to the index. What are the sources that are being used in that book to maybe do further research on specific topics? Now all you have to do is go on these EBSCOhost-type databases. You type in whatever subject. There's different techniques you can use, and you immediately are given literally thousands of different articles, peer-reviewed, popular articles, magazines, books on that particular topic or sources that in some way, shape, or form touch on those particular topics. Now imagine trying to tell a 16-year-old that lives in 2016 that that is the way that you would have to do it back in the day. I mean, their, their, their brain would probably literally explode because they complain even at the convenience in which they are benefiting from living in 2016. So my topic today is patiently waiting on the Lord. And, you know, that was obviously just a personal, personal examples that we all can kind of relate to, but maybe there's some more religious examples. You know, that title, I think, sometimes might make you think that I'm going to talk about, like, the return of Jesus today. You know, we have to admit that within our own tradition, and I don't mean this church, I mean just the Church of God tradition, we have had some members get involved in what's called the prediction addiction syndrome, where it's all about, you know, trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back. Is there, a, you know, a season we can predict he's going to come back? You know, you know, can we go to Daniel, we go to Revelation, we go to different parts of the passages, figure out the different, and you know, we have all these different timelines, and literally for every different person that talks about prophecy, you have a different timeline and a different book. And I'm not saying that we should not study those things, and I'm not saying that those things cannot be helpful and, 
and, and that the passages of the Bible don't give us some insight on what things will be like in the time of the end because we know that they do. But some people are so impatient, even with God, that they believe that in order for them to be saved, and I've actually talked to an individual before that said that I have to know when the return of Christ is going to become so I can be ready. And I just, that, that was strange to me. What do you mean so you can be ready? Like, what are you going to do? Like, uh, what do you, uh, if he's coming back, I mean, shouldn't you be ready? I mean, is that, does that mean if I do find out the date and it's in 10 years from now, I can just hang out? It, it, it was strange. And not to make, you know, th this isn't to take lightly. This person genuinely felt like this. And I don't really think it was, I, I'm not putting, I'm one of those people, just like many of us, we want to take personal responsibility. This person was not a minister. This person was someone who was just a churchgoer, a member uh, of a church, and they were genuinely following what they believed was true. I think they were misguided, and it was unfortunate that they felt that way because I really believe that it caused this person anxiety. The fact that they could not figure out exactly when Jesus was going to return. And so in the process of coming up with this message, uh, and of course I came up with the, the text uh, that we're going to be examining today before I kind of came up with that introduction. And it's found in Luke, the, the second chapter, verse 25 through 34. And I want us to kind of go on a journey back in history. A journey back in history. And just give you some context. This journey is in Jerusalem. It is at the temple, and the year is somewhere between the, the years of 6 B.C. to 4 B.C. And of course, it's during the childhood of Jesus Christ. The little information that we are given in the scriptures about the childhood of Jesus. So in Luke, the second chapter, verse 25 through 34 is what we're going to read. But right before this, just to give you a little context, we're in the temple, we're in Jerusalem, Jesus is an infant. It's not right after he's born, it's not the manger scene, it's not the shepherds, but it's in the temple when Jesus is being brought to the temple so Mary could perform her duties that she had to perform for her purification. If you don't know this, and many of us do, just to kind of go over that real quick, when a, when a, when a woman uh, had a child, if that child was male, we all know that the, on the eighth day that child had to be circumcised. Well... 33 days after that circumcision was the time period in which the mother of that child was unclean. And so at the conclusion of that 33 days, the mother would have to bring the child and herself to the temple to perform what was required of her as prescribed in the law of God. And that would be, of course, if you were you know, of better economic stance, then you could you know, give a lamb. But if you were not able to afford a lamb, you'd give maybe a couple turtle doves uh, or a couple pigeons. Luke, the second chapter, though, verse 25, introduces us to this individual that we never see for the rest of scriptures. And I want us to read it today. Luke, the second chapter, verse 25 through 34, says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, and I just kind of mentioned there, since Jesus was the firstborn, he was the one who opened the womb as the 
the, the passages say in the Old Testament, he was the Lord's. He was to be dedicated. He was the firstborn male. We see that, that the firstborn males are to be you know, dedicated to the Lord, that, the, that they have to be redeemed, essentially. He took him up and in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my ears or my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those sayings or at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, as I mentioned, this is the only part in Scripture that we hear of this individual Simeon. It's kind of uh, one of those random scenes that Luke decides to record. There's also another one that comes after this of a woman, a prophetess named, named Anna. But for the sake of time, we're only going to kind of look at Simeon today. This man obviously was an Israelite. We don't know from what tribe. We know that he's an Israelite because where's he at? He's in the temple. And we know that Gentiles uh, were not allowed to enter into those quarters. There was a Gentile quarter, but inside the temple, Gentiles were not allowed to come in. Now, it would seem that the implication of the text was this man was, was elderly. We have the passage that tells us that, you know, I now can die. So it could possibly mean that this man was of older age, and it seems to indicate that here. We don't firmly know that from the text, even though I tend to kind of, you know, be in the position that he does, he probably most likely is older, all right? It says that this man is two things, just and devout. There's three things that we're going to look at, but the first two is that he was just and devout. And of course, just being, you know, signifying he's a man of God, he feared God, he took the commandments, uh, the commandments of God seriously, he obeyed God, he was a devout person, he was serious, and we can even say that, you know, through the way that Luke describes him, that it was a genuine seriousness. It wasn't a look at me, it wasn't a look how pious I am, but it was a genuine spiritual uh, you know, d uh, devotion that he had to God. And of course, we can even say that the fact that God had chosen this individual to reveal these things to him probably shows us that he uh, truly was genuine. But the primary aspect that I want us to look at is where it says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And quite literally, what this meant was is he was waiting for the Messiah to come to restore Israel back to the unified kingdom that it once had been, just like the scriptures said was going to take place. He grew up as an Israelite, no doubt. He grew up hearing the stories about his heritage. He grew up hearing about you know, the famous things that God had done through this man Abraham and how Abraham was going to be you know, the, you know, basically the father of many, many, many people, many nations. Or he was going to, his, his, his offspring would bless many nations. That 
that he was going to be the father of our great nation, that nation being Israel. He heard about the deliverance from Egypt. He heard about the, the land of promise. He heard about, I'm sure, Solomon and David and the splendor of the unified nation of Israel and the great temple that was built under the reign of Solomon. He heard about these things, but yet here Simeon is living in the first century and he had never seen any of this in his life. Never. In his life, it wasn't Solomon reigning, or David, better yet, the uh, you know, model king of Israel. It was the Roman Empire. Yes, Israel had a, a temple, as we can see here, but we know it was under Roman occupation. We know that it was you know, under uh, the forces of a pagan empire. And yes, technically, they did have a king, Herod, but he was just a client king, that Herod, he was a puppet king. And that's what you know, the Romans would do and many other empires would do. They would take over a portion of, of, of land or they would take over a territory and they would you know, allow maybe there to be a king to rule in that area, but they would still have their own forces there. That king would really just be you know, a, a, a picture of someone who was make it feel like the people were really you know, on their own, but they weren't. They were paying taxes to Caesar. And so he lived in a time that it wasn't Israel. It was Palestine. They didn't have a king, but rather they were being occupied by foreign, oppressive, and pagan forces. But this man, Simeon, he believed God. He understood the prophet's message. He understood about there being a future restoration of Israel. He understood that there was going to be a time where all of those things that the prophets talked about, that there would be a Messiah. Now, I'm not going to say that he quite understood completely about the dual, duality of Jesus' coming. We know there is a duality. There is a first coming and a second coming, with the first coming being you know, for the redemption of our sins. And eventually we know from the second coming will be whenever many of those things that have not been fulfilled in the Old Testament about uh, the Messiah bringing in order, bringing Israel back, and being, you know, establishing that kingdom again. But Simeon, he had patience. He had patience. He believed the scriptures, and this is indicated by the hope that was within him because of the promises that he trusted in. And for this, there was a blessing for Simeon. And that blessing was that he was able to see the Lord's Messiah before he died. In fact, it was so pleasurable to Simeon, and whether he was an older man or whether he was not, he literally said, I am ready to die now. What I have seen there can't be anything greater than this. Now, of course, we know that that's not the end. We know that you know, eternity is not just us destined to look at the Jesus for all eternity. But he tasted what he always longed to taste, and that was the reality of God actually moving on his promises. Let's think about Simeon. He could have given up. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to continue on. None of us have to continue on. None of the Jews of Jesus' day had to continue on. He could have just said, you know what? I don't believe in this anymore. I haven't seen anything. All I see is the total opposite of what, you know, being an Israelite is supposed to be. Of course, there were passages we know that foreshadowed and you know, foretold that they would be occupied by a foreign nation, that, they, that there, was, you know, there was a time period that Israel would have to endure before the Messiah came, and some of that was because of punishment, 
because of what they had done and continually rejecting the Lord. Uh, and we see that through the Babylonian captivity and before that through the Assyrian captivity. But he could have given up. He could have basically said, you know what? I'm not doing all these things anymore. For what? I only live once. See those Romans over there, what they're doing? They seem to be having a lot more fun in life. There's a lot more, less restrictions. And so some, of course, did. Now, the ones living in Palestine during this time probably did not. The ones who were, you know, the, the remnant, as they called it during this period of time, the remnant that were staying faithful to that covenant promise and hoping for uh, the restoration of Israel. But there were people, there were the diasporic Jews that had left, and some of them still would, you know, pilgrimage back to Jerusalem on a, you know, a couple times a year because of the feast. But many of them just kind of filtered their way out into the world and became lost, as we know, uh, as we studied before. So the question I have is this. What is patience and what does it produce? What does it do for us? The definition of patience, if you were just to look at the English dictionary, like the American Heritage Dictionary, of the English language. This noun, patience, brings out the idea of having the capacity to endure hardship, difficulty, or inconvenience without complaint. And quite literally, patience emphasizes calmness, self-control, and the willingness or ability to tolerate delay. Delay, waiting. Those are not things that are easy. Waiting is not easy because what waiting implies is it shows us two points. It shows us the first point, where we are, and where we want to be or what we want. It's the distance between where we are and what we want. And so waiting can be a very, very difficult thing. Having patience can be difficult. All levels of life requires patience. Even if patience, to an extent, seems to be a lost characteristic among many people in the world, that does not neglect or does not change the fact that patience is still something that is very much required whether we like it or not in this life. For example, there is no clicking the button for the return of Christ. There is no secret formula or computer or technological innovation that can cause the entire world to be all of a sudden in peace as we have seen. So let's just think about things in life that we have to be patient for. We have to be patient, number one, with people, with each other, right? We have to be patient with our friends. We have to be patient with our church brethren, as we all know. We are a family, and sometimes we don't see eye to eye on everything. And if you think you're patient, I will say this. There's one thing you can do. Have children. And you will find out whether or not that patience that you thought you have is a reality. And I can, and I can attest to I'm up here talking to you about patience, and I'm not a patient person. I'm not. I'm just like, I'm no better than anyone else in the world as far as, you know, having this inclination of wanting having instant gratification. You know, that's kind of the world we're in, right? The instant gratified world. We want instant gratification. Patience in meeting goals in life. I mean, again, what do people want? Because we live in a world that gives us what we want almost just like that, I think that you have people who have impatience and everything, whether it be a goal at work, you know, waiting for that promotion. If I don't get that promotion, I'm quitting. I've met people like that, and it's unfortunate because I think that that's something that's instilled in them early just by seeing the culture that they live in. 
How about health or fitness goals? That takes patience. It takes endurance. You don't just, you know, meet, you know, you don't just meet your goals in a couple of days. It sometimes takes months and months. Sometimes it takes a year or more than that. Me, and this is a really mundane thing, this is really, you know, not important at all, but I have to be patient with my University of Oklahoma Sooners football program. It's been 16 years since they've won a national championship. I've been waiting a long time, and my patience is really growing thin. So we all have different things in life that we can identify that we have to be patient with. But there's one forgotten element of, of patience I think sometimes, I don't know if it's forgotten as much as it is overlooked. And that is the idea of hope. Hope produces patience. Hope produces patience. In the New Testament, patience is almost always closely connected to hope, and hope is closely connected to faith. And we're going to hear a little bit about faith here in a little while from the title of the sermon. Many of the references of patience is a comparing and contrasting of affliction, trial, persecution, to joy, and to promises ahead. Think about it, this sequence. Because we have faith, we are enabled to have hope. Because the faith we have give, gives us expected or expectation and confidence. Our faith allows us to have hope because we believe that we are going to receive. We expect these things. We have confidence in these things. And this hope creates patience because we are hopeful that at the end of our patience, the end of our waiting, we will receive the expectation. Let's go to Romans, the eighth chapter, real quick. Romans, the eighth chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. We're going to break into one of Paul's, uh, uh, so one of Paul's thoughts here. Romans, the eighth chapter, verse 18, says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And Paul is drawing on that analogy on that promise of being clothed with immortality and that time that we finally shed our corruptible body, our finally shed that sin nature that we have been clothed with through being a human being in this world. And just like Paul mentions that we groan within ourselves and we eagerly await this adoption, so did Simeon at the seeing, at the restoration of Israel. And he did so because he had hope that God was going to carry out the promises in which God had promised through the prophets. Things that we today can think of, we just went over, that we have to have patience for, are one thing, like we just went over. But there's other things today that we have to have even more patience for and more hope for because it causes us great pain in this life. 
Does it cause us pain to see the evil in this world? It does. We see things on television all the time. We see uh, the hurt that goes on in this world. We see the injustices that goes on in this world. The, the terrible things that are done to human beings. And it causes us pain. And that much more, it requires that much more hope. So we have to be patient. We, we have a hope for things in this world. We, see, we, we have a hope that the world will be cured of evil. And of course, that is a huge part of our hope. That is the entire point of the kingdom of God coming upon this world. Quite literally, what we hope for is what Revelation talks about. For that pain to be wiped away from us, from our relatives, from our friends, from brethren, from people in the world. Revelation talks about God wiping every tear from our eyes. There's a lot of that. And I'm not speaking necessarily 100% literally all the time, but we have a lot of pain that a lot of us have endured. We have lost loved ones that have, you know, that have went to sleep, that have died. And it causes us pain. But what carries us through is that hope. That hope that we have that there is a future time that God's going to raise the dead. And through Christ, through his resurrection, we are going to follow after. We have not seen the liberties we have been promised. We have not been clothed with immortality. We have not received the kingdom, and Jesus has not yet returned to usher in these things. It is only by our hope that lies within us, through the trials that produce this patience and endurance. Our last passage today, let's go to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. We're going to look at two verses there. As we see how important patience is, and we see the different elements that go along with patience, faith and hope, and how those things gives us the ability to have patience because we know at the end we will receive the crown, the prize. And this is redundant to many of us because we know this, but... I just want us to think about this, because Hebrews, the 12th chapter, it really made me think, as a history teacher, one of the things that I, I, I tell my students to do, and what we try to do, is there's something that we look at in history when it comes to how can we look at different eras of history and find the continuities and find the changes. Like, in other words, we look at maybe a span of a thousand years, and we say, what has, where's the continuity at? What has stayed the same? What has changed? It's a different way of looking at history, but this is kind of the way historians try to look at history. They try to analyze history and ask questions, not just what happened, but why did they happen and how do those things affect other things that come later. And with this, with us, this is one of the great continuities of the entire Bible. Because we're not just here on our own today. You see, we're called to be a part of a heritage that goes back thousands and thousands of lives or years. We are part of a special group of people. Millions of men and women have came and died throughout the different generations. And we are supposed to join them together in this same group. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, says this, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As many of us know, just a chapter before this, when he says how great of a cloud of witness that we have, he's referring to, of course, what we call the faith chapter. And if you go to Hebrews 11 chapter, we're not doing that here, but on your own, many of us have read that several times, we read about men and women of faith throughout the entire biblical narrative. Men and women who never received quite the promises that they looked forward to. And right here, the author of Hebrews is beckoning us to join that group, that camp, that group of men and women throughout history that have, because of their hope, because of their faith, they had patience and they had an endurance that endured them to the end. Right here in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, as the author tells us that we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, he tells us that we are to run the race. Run the race. Now this interesting thing is, is that this English word that we have in our vocabulary, agony, is, a der is derived actually from this Greek word right here in Hebrews, the word for race. And we know that a race is an athletic performance. A race takes place where an individual exerts every muscle that they have for the purpose of competing and performing well. And in the process of competing and, and competing in such a race, things happen such as lactic acid builds up in the body, the heart rate elevates, which causes the lactic acid to, to build up. And what does that do? Is that pleasurable? Of course it's not. It's very painful when that takes place. Any, any of us that have worked out before, you go in the gym, you do some sort of ex exercise, after a few reps, you're going to start to feel a burn. Or after, you know, a few minutes, you're going to start to feel your heart really starting to pound very, very hard. And so what that means is, is that we have to train for this race. You see, this race right here is the same race that these men and women, they race themselves. This is the race of the Christian life. And this Christian life, even though we have men and women of faith before Christ, we have many of these people who raced the same one because it was still based upon that same God and Father that we have in heaven. It was still required to believe and have that same faith in God. And we, of course, we know that those people from the Old Testament, now those things that have done but through Jesus, are retrospectively applied upon them. In other words, Jesus is a Savior for all mankind. And through faith, those men and women who believed in God are themselves redeemed. So in the same way, the race that has been set before us is very difficult to that physical race that we experience in the real life. We don't just, you know, if we were to go and try to do maybe a 5K, that's like a three-mile run. Most of us probably would train a little bit because it would be very difficult for most of us just to go out and run three miles without any kind of training. And so the training is this life that we live in, the patience that we, uh, that, that we have because of the hope, because of the faith that we have. Now, in conclusion, there's one thing I want to bring out. Luke, the second chapter, verse 29 through 32. When we looked at that, there was one little passage. Some call this the Psalm of Simeon because Simeon kind of gives a little psalm. And one of the things that he says is he says, in looking and seeing the Lord's Messiah, that he was a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory of your people Israel. 
Now, we know that Jesus is the light of the world. And so the question I have for us today, does our hope result in patience and endurance? We are ourselves also called the light of the world in the scriptures. We know that Matthew, the fifth chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men so others may see them and glorify your Father in heaven. At the end of Jesus' time here on earth, after he was resurrected, right before he ascended to heaven, the apostles asked Jesus this. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has put in his own authority. But I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the promise comes. So what I am saying is, and we know further that promise came and they were to go out and to preach and testify the things that Jesus did throughout the entire world. Even though God calls us to patience, it's not a passive patience. We're not called to just sit at home and just, well, is God going to come today? Is the Lord going to come today? Our patience is demonstrated through our hope, through our faith and hope of us living out a life that shows that we have the hope of the Lord's salvation in us. Proving that we are patiently waiting on the Lord does not mean that we are sitting in our chairs with our Bibles open, looking at the sky, and I'm talking metaphorically, and just waiting on God to come. It's an act of patience. It's a patience that's shown through despite all the things that come at us in the world. Despite all the trials and tribulations that we endure, we still have a faith that backs up our patience. The question we have today, and another, you know, a little counting, another little wait. We are waiting now for the day of Pentecost to come. Just like, and I must say, if we just think about this, in Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, we're in the exact same time period that those apostles were sitting around, probably trying to wrap their head around, this promise is coming, what, what exactly? Now, he told us the Holy Spirit, how is this going to happen? There's no doubt that they had to show and demonstrate patience. Now, the scriptures record the story for us. We don't know exactly how much quite they understood. It was before they received the Holy Spirit. But no doubt, there was a patience that had to be uh, exhibited by those apostles. As they sat there, they're in Jerusalem. Jesus, just a few days ago, said, wait here to the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask ourselves, as we continue on here, how is our patience in God? Is our patience being demonstrated as we actively and continually seek God? As we actively, continually seek, uh, not just, you know, to know when Jesus is going to come back, but basically looking at, you know, the promises that God has given us. Do we ask ourselves, do I still believe in them as much as I did when I was first baptized? Some of us, and many of us here in our tradition, didn't think that the 80s were going to come the 90s were going to come. 2016, 40 years ago, if you would have told some people within our tradition that 2016 was going to come, they would have laughed at you. Because that wasn't according to the plan to many people. So, as we conclude here, are we patiently waiting on the Lord?